Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos. I, uh, I have just finished reading a mesmerizing book, Leonard Arrington, the biography of Leonard Arrington, the church historian by Gregory Prince. Now, I read his volume. It's a huge tome. You can see it's a gigantic book. Fantastic. This is what biography should be. Uh, thank you, Gregory Prince. Very excellent material. Uh, I read his biography on David O. McKay, and that was so stunning. With so many insights, the thing that shocked me the most about that was how indecisive David O. McKay was. Well, more of the same as it goes through because of so many factors. Uh, the worst are the Three Stooges, Ezra Taft Benson, um, Boyd K. Packer, and Mark E. Peterson. Obviously, these men did not believe Jesus was running the church, so they had to lie to hide the bad stuff in order to build up a false faith. And now we have absolutely magnificent evidence of that in this biography. Phenomenal book. Highly recommend you read it. The nice thing is it's relatively new, even though I'm late coming to the game. Typical. University of Utah Press, uh, 2016. What I want to do is just basically go through, and I, I've turned down hundreds of pages. My wife was laughing at me last night. She said, you can't turn down every page. And I said, yeah, every page in this book <laughs> is worth mentioning. I'm not going to have time to go completely through it. But make no mistake about it. The overall tone is, I am a kindred spirit with Leonard Arrington, not with the Mormon apologists. Yes, I was a Mormon apologist. Yes, I wanted to defend the faith. And yes, I was deceived. I was misled. And I was lied to. And unfortunately, like Leonard Arrington, I was a little bit naive and so I got sucked into the deception. The difference between Leonard and I is I said, hold it. No more. I cannot trust a pack of lying wolves in the leadership position. There's no way Jesus called these men to that position. I, I just cannot believe that. There's no way. They love to tout that it's wrong to criticize them. They love to tout that they are led by Jesus and they know Jesus and all that. Evidence shows the contrary. We now know how they deal with honest historians because they themselves do not want all the truth told. Truths aren't useful in so many respects. According to Boyd, I live to lie about the history of the church, Packer. Uh, he was, depends on how you look at it, <laughs> he was the singular worst thing that ever happened. He was the Judas Iscariot of Mormonism, or else he was the best thing. <laughs> 
Depends. <laughs> he betrayed the truth. He did not have faith in Jesus to teach the truth at all. Or for, for the goodness of history, he had to lie, cheat, manipulate, deceive, and then intimidate and use his priesthood unrighteously. Uh, and that's Mormonism's legacy. That's why Mormons are not trusted to this day is because somebody above Boyd K. Packer did not have the balls to say shut up and sit your sorry little ass down. Yeah. Somehow he acquired way too much power. Even Bruce R. McConkie was intimidated by Boyd K. Packer. <laughs> Which, very interesting how that works. <laughs> I want to just go through and read some of the highlights of things I've mentioned. Yes, I'm taking this completely out of context. I understand that. The whole story is worth reading, though. And it's so sad. Mormons who work for the church and the Mormon church are never going to tell you the truth. It, if you're naive enough to think you can get the truth from them, Good luck. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> Have at it. Because the evidence absolutely puts... I challenge Mormon apologists to refute this book and try to tell me you believe the leadership are all unified and faithful, honest, good-loving men whom Jesus talks to all the time. I double-dog challenge you apologists who are brainwashed. You're sucked into the mire of lying for the brethren who are lying for the Lord. Go ahead and take on this book. I have yet to see him do it. Daniel Peterson of Interpreter, I'm talking to you. You think you're such a still good, big hot. You and Lou Midgley, go ahead. And I know Lou Midgley did not like Leonard Arrington because he wasn't orthodox enough. But don't, don't worry, Lou Midgley wrote a Ph.D. dissertation back in 1896 or whenever on Paul Tillich, so he knows everything. <laughs> it's amazing how ridiculous the apologetics stance has gotten. Well, the church has basically got rid of farms, which was the best thing the church ever did for it, but it still doesn't rehabilitate their image yet. That was a step in the right direction, but not near good enough yet. Here is, uh, here is on page 65, I will try to context this a little bit. The uh, Edward Banfield, the author of The Moral Basis of the Backward Society, he was talking, uh, after Leonard Arrington became church historian in 1972, he checked the card catalog to determine if the church even had a copy of The Great Basin Kingdom, which was a magnificent book by Leonard Arrington, where he showed how actual good history was done in Mormonism back in the 1950s. And, of course, the church didn't like it, but all the other professional historians did, because the church <laughs> is not historian-trained. Those leaders don't know spit. 
they think because of an office they have a right to dictate how history should go. But they have to cheat, lie, manipulate, leave out. They even declared that they wanted to have a book burning. That was such an eye-opening revelation. Yeah, the Inquisition is within Mormonism now. If they could burn the books, they would. That's all I need to know to know where not to look. And I am a little bit peeved. Books like this just piss me off. Because the lies are so blatant, and they don't have to be. Leonard Arrington was right. He was the one people trusted because he was truthful, forthright, and open. And by dealing with the issues, we can solve them. But the leadership, with their doubt, with their utter lack of faith, and absolutely no revelation or inspiration whatsoever, I'm on a diatribe here, right? <laughs> Those poor, blind wolves for guides are never going to get you to the true God. It can't happen. It just, it can't. <laughs> so anyway, this is a book that thrilled me, that angered me, obviously, that amused me. Oh, I just laughed hundreds of times in this book. That amazed me. I come to appreciate the true greatness of a real good historian whom I thought resided in farms for a while, but now that I see the difference between real scholarship and chump apologetics, like so many of the farms materials ended up being, and of course they ended up attacking other Mormons for being less orthodox and less truthful and less faithful. It, it, it was heinous how they ended up, but it was justified that they got eliminated, even though they are still on the internet producing non-peer review, fluff, pap, pablum, and just stupidity right now. It really is silly. <sighs> and the church hasn't done much better. I will give them credit for the Joseph Smith Papers project, however. They learned how to deal with those, well, what happened was Boyd K. Packer died. Thank the good Lord why he let him live so long, I'll never know. But finally the church woke up and realized its dingling anti-intellectual stance didn't really help its image. And so they ended up agreeing to do the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which is the first good thing the church has done since Joseph Smith's day with the Book of Mormon. If you can call that good, Mormons do. The, the rest of us do, too, because it shows us the basis for learning how to discriminate between the true and false, right? Yeah. Why would it have been classified as anti-Mormon? His own book, Defending the... F Teaching the History of the Church, the Great Basin Kingdom, the Church Archives classified as an anti-Mormon book. That's how utterly stupid the church leadership is. They can't even tell what genre a book belongs to, right? Well, one person replied it was a scholarly book, which meant that it wasn't designed to be faith-promoting. And if it wasn't 
for the church than by classification. It had to be against the church. Notice the immature black and white thinking of the Mormon leadership views. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Moreover, it didn't go through a church reading committee. Oh, well, that's, boy, that's, which meant it wasn't approved. Oh, the church has to approve all their literature. And if it wasn't approved, then by definition it must be... You get the picture. <laughs> if the brethren don't approve it, then it's not valid. The brethren are so paranoid they don't know their heads from a hole in the ground. This book proves that over and over again. That's one of the main messages of this book, is the leadership are just men after all. And I seriously have doubts now that they've ever, ever spoken for the Lord. That, that, that can seriously be questioned intellectually justifiably, without question. <laughs> so anyway, here's a few statements that I found that were really interesting and remarkable that I want to share with you. We are far enough removed from Salt Lake to be able to do and say as we please. Our living will not be controlled by the church. This was the idea in when he was first becoming a professor and wanted to write history. He was thinking of looking at Boise instead of Salt Lake City. Even back then in the 1940s, he knew the issue. The church controls the narrative. And by now, of course, the internet days. We all know that now. Yeah. But I didn't know that for most of my life, and I was born in 61. So that's pretty good control of the narrative, right? Interestingly, all of this went down. His fantastic call to the church historian and then, and then the demise because idiots without brains like Packer and Peterson and Benson uh, could not see the big picture because, of course, they had no intelligence anyway, they squashed the project. They, they put so many stupid, immature, childish, antic roadblocks in the way of accomplishing a legitimate history of the church which could have shown the rest of the world some things about Mormonism that the world still misunderstood but the leaders were so terrified and so full of fear that, oh, oh, they might find out that one of us fart. Oh, we can't have that. We have to be angelic and holy. That whole fake image is just so sadly stamped into Mormon history. Yeah, that's why D. Michael Quinn's, uh, where is it? Where, yeah, right here. The Mormon hierarchy and uh, extensions of power, origins of power, early Mormonism and the magic worldview. That's why they kicked him out, too, because he began to tell all of the history. And believe me, there's as much that they have left out that they have ever allowed to be included, right? <laughs> D. Michael Quinn got in trouble. Well, so did Leonard Arrington, although he never got excommunicated. He did lose the greatest position he ever could have had. Not before he did a lot of good, though. I'm afraid the intellectual atmosphere there at BYU 
would be stifled by the dogmatists of the church. That's why he didn't want to go to BYU, because the dogmatists of the church control BYU, the board of directors, who, of course, are, one guess, the Twelve Apostles. <laughs> At least several of them. So Leonard knew early on about the problem with the church. It wasn't that they didn't tell the truth. They didn't tell all the truth. And we have hundreds of thousands of pages of information now showing that they left out far more truth than they ever included. I mean, Richard Bushman's Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, right? And the, the information on the William McClellan papers, and just all kinds of historical information that the church has just squelched for centuries, now coming out in the age of the internet, and now we know who to trust and who not to trust. Salt Lake City, you're off the map for being trustworthy. Sucks to be you. <laughs> Here's another one. On the sensitive subject of Joseph Smith's first vision, there was suspicious treatment of Dean Jesse when he first got his uh, scholarly wings, his PhD, and he wrote an article on the first vision, and the church didn't like it because it had some information in it that was not in the official narrative, and they made him go apologize for it. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> That's so fascinating. The paranoia, the childlike total ignorance of the leadership. It really comes out strong in this book. Leonard Arrington isn't the only one that was hollered at. When you work for the church, you see a lot of stuffed shirts. But Leonard was so real. I wanted to be Leonard when I grew up. That was an assessment of Lavina Fielding Anderson, an associate editor at the Ensign, who worked with everyone, the historians, the regular Joes, the church leaders, and all that. And she saw what stuffed peacocks the leaders had become. Proud, arrogant, ignorant peacocks, imagining that their callings elevated them beyond the celestial realms. They were already the gods. They received their Elohimhood, as I call it. You know, it's too bad. Leonard Arrington was down to earth. He was realistic. He loved people. And he genuinely tried to help you magnify and improve yourself. That's something the church leaders are so squeamish and chicken shit about doing. All they want you to do is praise and worship them. And I'm not going to anymore. You give me a reason to now. But I'm not even looking their direction. Because I know where the truth is. And I am not having a faith crisis. The truth is having, the church is having a truth crisis. That's the issue. They love to say the onus is on us, not this one. We have discovered that it's not our faith that's being harmed or being lost. It's the truth that you've lied about, hidden about, and covered up and misinterpreted. And it continues on to this day. It truly does. I mean, wow, it's all over the internet. You go to fair, you go to, you go to, 
the interpreter or sick at non or any of the apologet book of mormon central or whatever they just continue on spouting the silliness it's really interesting but that's what gives us a reason for helping show you the comparison and contrast and the actual evidence and in some cases the lack of actual evidence which would give you reasons to believe if it existed but it does not and so they fill it all in with talkity talk 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 and they use the proper words and they make it seem so much stronger than it really is you know, the book of Abraham, facsimile number three. One of my favorite questions. What is the name of the blasted king in facsimile number three that Joseph Smith claimed was a king? Give me the name of that king, right? Bother just won't touch that with a ten-foot pole. Because Joseph Smith didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You know, or give me an archaeological artifact genuinely identified and understood by all the rest of the world also as a genuine Nephite or Lamanite artifact from Mesoamerica, which is one of the most ludicrous theories. Uh, RFM and Bill Reel on Mormonism Live last week destroyed the Two Hill Cumorah Theory, and this next Wednesday, look it up on YouTube, Mormonism Live, they've got a special guest showing why the Hill Cumorah was always in New York, according to the Joseph Smith and his brethren. But today's apologists don't want you to believe that, because, of course, there's no archaeology. There's no verification whatsoever. None. Kind of the same thing here. Leonard Arrington wanted to just tell the truth. And the church didn't want that. And they fought him tooth and nail all the way. The church is not interested in historical truth. I've got a 500-page book of evidence right here. It's astonishing. It really is. A church that's supposed to be restoring the truth doesn't want the truth out. <laughs> would rather have its own carefully chosen, selected, manipulated version of the truth because, of course, it doesn't believe God and it doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and that he's revealing things to them. That's so obvious after reading this book. It's amazing. So, oh yeah, yeah. This was interesting. This is something that the farms apologists never grasped, and they still don't to this day. It's obvious if you read uh, any of their blogs or their comments in comment sections on uh, their websites or whatever. They hate everybody that doesn't think like them. Because they're so brainwashed, they're so already self-righteous, arrogant, and self-important that they can't get along with anyone unless you believe like they do. Listen to the beautiful contrast with Leonard Arrington. He said, the process of spiritual maturation that began in Leonard's teens accelerated with his matriculation at the University of Idaho. Earlier he had learned that there were other faith traditions beside his own. 
Right, that's something apologists apparently still don't get. Now he learned to accept and even to embrace the other. I love this. He learned to accept and embrace the other. A lesson many of his co-religionists were never able to absorb. Uh, yeah, Dan Peterson, <coughs> Lou Misley, <coughs> yeah, people like that. They still can't. The teaching moment came quickly. Having been schooled by his mother to despise agnostics, now this is interesting because they were raised Mormon, but his mom despised agnostics, and that's how he was raised. One of whom was an uncle for whom she had no good words. He found that his first college roommate was, ta-da, agnostic. <laughs> the Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? <laughs> what a thought. I was to room with one who would go to hell. See, the automatic built-in prejudice because of Mormon religion upbringing. I had that same prejudice, man. Isn't that interesting? But when I saw him, I found that he was built the same as I was. He did not even have horns or a forked tail. I grew to like him. I liked an agnostic. Today I possess the same ideas of God that I possessed when I came to college, but I no longer hate those who disagree. I respect them. Now this is something. Let's keep going. That's on page 107, on page 108. I tolerate them. Boy, that's something Mormonism won't do. Boyd K. Packer. <laughs> Boy. And he was able to generalize his feelings, accepting throughout life not only of those outside of his own faith tradition, but also those within whose beliefs and actions differed from his own even the general officers who became his nemesis. I no longer hate those who disagree. Notice his choice of words. He was raised to hate people who disagree with him. Well, that's how we were as apologists, right? You don't respect anybody who thinks differently than you or believes differently than you or acts differently than you, etc., well, I no longer hate those who disagree. I respect and tolerate those persons. Most of all, I tolerate and I respect the ideas and the opinions which these people possess. That's what counts. George Tanner, director of the LDS Institute of Religion, reinforced the lesson. This is fascinating. Similar to Leonard and different from most of his other co-religionists, Tanner had experienced religion outside of the often narrow confines of the Salt Lake City Great Basin area, earning a graduate degree at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He taught Leonard the lesson that he had learned. Now get this. <laughs> to be a Christian first and a Mormon second. Oh, wow! 
There are so many Mormons who give their first emphasis to the unique or the distinctive doctrines and practices of Mormonism, and this is wrong. Very wrong. If we are, in truth, restored Christianity. Quite an outlook, isn't it? Very interesting. And then another sentence. Those who have asserted that conversion comes only through the spirit, that it does not also come through the mind, are wrong. At the core of his quest was honest doubt. I, I love this guy. You know, the, these clowns, these clowns in church who follow uh, Dietrich Uchtdorf, doubt your doubts and all that. <clears throat> I don't have to doubt my doubts. I doubt your phony truths. That's what I'm doubting. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. He believed in using his brains. It's no wonder he was such a fabulous historian, right? Faith with spiritual knowledge was accessible by intellectual means, is how Leonard Arrington worked. But the most important book he ever read that gave him his theme of how to interlace faith with reason, doubt with reality, so on and so forth, to understand the truth using your brains, not parking them on the street corner, was a book by Santayana, The Life of Reason, Reason in Religion. It raised in the church that took primarily a fundamentalist viewpoint of the scriptures, Arrington was, that the scriptures were inerrant, and believe me, they love to say, no, we don't think that. Don't you kid yourselves. You just go ahead and give any other interpretation out of the scriptures than what the church allows and you, you will soon see that that is how they treat it. Not self-contradictory, <laughs> which is a joke in this day of the internet, holy shish kebab, and contains only literal truth. That's even a bigger joke. <laughs> Leonard had already come to realize that such a viewpoint could not withstand the scientific scrutiny of historical critical methodology. Now, I didn't discover that until way later. Leonard had it up on me, that's for sure. I, I bow before his greatness of, of being a better brain than I'll ever be. That's true. That's not a problem for me. But he got it right. Yeah? That was the issue here. Reason in religion became Leonard's Rosetta Stone for deeper understanding. Now, this is important. This meant something to me. When I read this last night, I said, okay, yeah. It was a great influential book on me, he says. It helped me to see that one might be a sincere believer in Mormonism, although I'm not any longer, but in whatever you want to believe, and at the same time accept the findings of the brightest intellects, and it doesn't matter where, Philosophy, science, 
history, economics, whatever, doubts, atheists, agnostics, doesn't matter what. You can accept what the brightest intellects say from whatever tradition, whether it's a different religion or a different concept altogether, because reason in religion helped me to understand that it isn't important whether certain religious or theological affirmations are truths in a literal sense, or whether they are true in a symbolic sense, or whether they are true in a poetic sense. The ability to see truth as being both symbolic and literal, and to understand that one kind did not work against the other, this set Leonard apart from most of his co-religionists. Indeed, he went the next step by realizing that both kinds of truths are essential to a balanced faith. While religious doctrines may be right symbolically, they should not be substituted for scientific truth. At the same time, those who accept scientific truth as the only truth, as the final truth, end up substituting inadequate personal symbols which are unsatisfying and unedifying. Santayana introduced Leonard to the ideas of myth and mythical truth, concepts that continued to escape many of his faith tradition. Leonard embraced layers of truth while at the same time accepting scientific insights. Now, I will say, I have Santayana's book. I've had it for a couple of years. I've never bothered to read it completely through. I've kind of browsed through it and all. But now that I've read Leonard Arrington, it helped him balance his faith without becoming anti-scientific because, of course, the scientific truths are exquisite and they're very powerfully confirmed. So there's no point in fighting science in order to build your religion any more than there's any point in fighting religion to embrace and enjoy your science. You can have both. It basically is what Leonard Arrington approach is. Well, you'll never find the doughheads in Salt Lake City advocating that because, of course, it is beyond their intellectual capacity. They are mere managers. They're doughheads who don't know how to think through issues. They get in a position of power, and they imagine they're all automatically more righteous, more correct, and more powerful than everyone else in the world. Right? They delude themselves. That's why I can't trust them anymore. Okay, so, page 114. Oh, and then, yeah, I'm not going to... He could accept 
This is page 115. He could accept divergent views without feeling threatened or challenged. I love that because in so many regards, this is what's beginning to happen to me now. As, uh, like I said in the last video, I'm beginning to study the ancient mysteries. And there are other ancient mystery traditions that certainly do not jive with what I was born and raised and studied. And yet they are beautiful. They are magnificent. They are educational. They are spiritually uplifting and exciting. And yet there are blatant contradictions and all of that's okay at this point, right? So I thought that was a good point with, with uh, Arrington. Let me go to uh, page 124. He climbed Denson Peak with some people. And Leonard had a hard time getting up Ensign Peak. He wasn't exactly Superman <laughs> any more than I am. Uh, but then he delivered a most wonderful sermon. I can't remember the content, but the feeling was one of, as individuals, we do what God expects of us. We don't need to be tied down by this corporation, Mormonism, that wants to control everyone's lives. We are individuals trying to serve God the best way we can. And she says, that was just pure Leonard. And that's where I've arrived at, truly, yeah. I don't need to turn to the church for spirituality, truth, or becoming a better person. Uh, and believe me, that truth has made me free in ways I never <laughs> imagined, and it is glorious. So, Okay, 125. Yeah, it, it, this is a great juxtaposition, one that I myself have experienced in my own life. Leonard's exposure to religious philosophers during college broadened his concept of religious truth to include both the literal and the symbolic. It's why Boyd K. Packer was such a narrow bigot and a prejudiced, uh, non-thinking, power-hungry church leader is because he only ever came up through the church education system. He didn't have an actual education. He was brainwashed and became dogmatic, and he thought he was God Almighty already before he even got to the apostleship, right? So that's why he was such a narrow bigot. Leonard Arrington was much more of a friend a loving person who helped others acquire truth no matter from where. In that regard, Leonard Arrington was vastly closer to Brigham Young than Boyd K. Packer could have ever become, let alone Ezra Taft, I hate communists, Benson, and Mark E. Peterson. All of them so close-minded. It just astounded. Astonishing how close-minded they were in this book. It blows you away, man. Uh, for instance, as late as 1977, 
five years after becoming church historian, he declared his openness. Very interesting. This is probably what upset poor little Lou Midgley in his narrow-minded, dogmatic, orthodox ridiculousness and why he attacked Leonard Arrington. Five years after becoming church historian, he declared his openness to either kind of interpretation of the founding narratives of Mormonism. In the Mormon epic, the Book of Mormon, one may believe in the first vision without worrying unduly as to whether God and Jesus literally appeared in person to Joseph Smith or whether he thought he saw them in a mystical sense. Did the plates of the Book of Mormon exist in a concrete literal sense, or did they exist in a symbolic sense? I feel comfortable either way, Arrington said. His refusal to be ruffled ran headlong into the orthodoxy of fundamentalist church leaders such as Bruce McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, and Marky e. Peterson. And this orthodoxy, which is so sad for Mormonism, it's great for the rest of us who finally see the truth and we can, whoa, go find reality. But those stuck within Mormonism, you got to feel bad for them in some respects. This orthodoxy refused to see as acceptable anything but a literal interpretation. So... That's interesting that Arrington was much more broad uh, capable of having a, a more uh, nuanced ability to interpret truths. See, in Mormonism, only the literal truth ever happens. Nothing is symbolic, nothing is poetic. You know, They narrow you down and they dumb you down to a pebble. And then they make you think that you are the Matterhorn. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing how they do that. Yeah. On page 129, okay, Leonard said, were there really Nephites and Lamanites? He laughed and eventually said, well, let's put it like this. He was in an interview with someone. And he was asked, were there really any fights in Lamanite? He said, well, let's put it like this. This is part of the great Mormon myth that we all hold to and benefit from. In other words, he wouldn't commit. Really, it's the safest way if you're going to insist on keeping yourself within that <coughs> phony narrative, right? Because you dang sure can't point to anything that justifies your belief, right? So <laughs> there's nothing there to verify. And then he lashed out at actions by church leaders that he saw as ultimately destructive to the institutional church. The attempt to suppress problems and difficulties the attempt to intimidate people who raise problems or express doubts or seek or reconcile difficult facts is both ineffective and futile. But don't tell the brethren that. They think they have a handle on it. It leads to suspicion, mistrust, 
the condescending slat, uh, slant of data. The more we deny or appear to deny certain demonstrable facts, the more we must ourselves harbor serious doubts and have something to hide. Yeah, and the brethren after 200 years still haven't grown enough brains to get that. But the Internet's teaching them. I think the Internet is their absolute worst nightmare come true, and boy, do they deserve it. Yep. 132. To his children he wrote, I have not yet come to feel the necessity of frequent attendance at the temple. I think I get as much inspiration watching birds or looking at the mountains and the wilderness as participating in the rituals there. That's beautiful. That's interesting. Nature, not a man-made building. Not the inside of a man-made building. No matter if they have blown a hundred million dollars on a gorgeous glass chandelier that can't compete with the beautiful rose on the wild mountainside. That can't compete with a view of the Grand Teton or Old Faithful in West Yellowstone or the Matterhorn or the Great Desert in Australia, or the wilderness black forest in Germany, the snows of northern Canada, the snow and ice. Nothing can replace Mother Nature. Leonard showed me there he's in touch. That, that, that's a beautiful sentiment. This was astonishingly sad on page 133 to me. Months before his death, Leonard bore final testimony to his children of his loyalty to the tradition, but he coupled with it an injunction that however noble the organization and its aspirations may be, the encounter with the infinite is ultimately the responsibility of the individual and not the organization. There are LDS families in which loyalty to Mormon doctrines, practices, and leaders is so strong that the children feel they have to conform in order to assure the love of their parents. The parents love the church more than their own children. Children sense that the parents would choose the church over their children if there was that choice. Young people are sometimes brought up to idealize church leaders. Blah! I used to, but not now. Both past and present. But no human being is perfectly benevolent and wise, <laughs> especially if you're in the upper rooms of the Salt Lake Temple called an apostle. Leaders have their own stories, complete with biases, fears, and needs, as well as unique strengths and gifts. They can seek for the spirit, for the light, but they are still human, and the idolization of our leaders 
can be unhealthy. What it does is it can keep us from realizing that we must search for the Spirit and the light. Man, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that sad? There are some parents who would choose the frickin' church over their own kids? Well, if my kids ever watch this, I want to assure them I would never pick a church over you. There's no way. That would never happen. No, you're vastly superior to any church or any other organization. Okay, 135. Leonard considered the underground church to be a sign of institutional health. The underground church is the idea where groups of people would meet outside of the scheduled church meetings and they would get together and study and learn and understand things that they couldn't possibly in church because, of course, the brethren control everything. They're so nervous and full of doubt and they lack such faith in their own people and in their own God that they have to manipulate all of the information. So there's groups that get together to go past their milk slop and get into the real delicious food, right? This is called the underground church. And it was generally composed of church members who feel deeply about the gospel, but who have no outlet within the formal church structure for discussing many of the issues that are of the greatest importance to them. One can't, one can't raise meaningful questions or discuss them honestly and fully in Sunday school, seminary, institute, MIA, sacrament meeting, etc. So what the hell good is the church? <laughs> well, what, what's its point? Right? So congenial and kindred souls meet in dinner parties at homes, fireside groups, study groups, vacation groups, and at professional and trade conventions. And they really learn how to enjoy each other there, not in the corporate church. That's interesting, isn't it? Fantastic. It's interesting that you can't get that in church. Is it any wonder so many people are leaving and the church has so many rescue missions that flop every time because, of course, they're not interested in you. They don't give a damn about your soul. It's all about them and their money acquisition and retaining their power so that you stand up. Oh, here comes the general authority. Stand up and show proper respect. That's all they give a damn about. They've proven that for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> it's interesting. <sighs> this is fantastic, too. Page 138. Boy, a lot of information in page 130s, huh? Arrington, when he got involved as a historian, knew right away, the church has made little or no provision for the use of its intellectuals. They may teach at BYU, of course, or within the church education system, yeah, yeah. 
or at such Mormon schools as Utah State University. But their training and their scholarship have not been utilized to any significant degree in the councils of the church. They are seldom given high positions of authority. They are seldom consulted on policies in which they are regarded as experts and specialists. Those who choose employment within the church education system face likely degradation of their intellectual curiosity because the institute system tends to stress testimony-bearing rather than real reason and scholarship. And institute instructors are encouraged to use only testimony-building books for texts and reading assignments. Many of us think we detect an anti-intellectual trend in the seminary system, and it's often from the ranks of this group that institute teachers are selected. And the church just last year indicated, uh, now this was back in 1977, 70. Six, whenever. Oh, well, we're 40 years down the road, and the church just last year announced that from now on, they are not going to hire PhD-holding people, but they're only going to choose the religious instructors from within the church education system. Talk about the scholarship of incest thinking. Only choose our own our own brainwashed people for scholars to teach who? Your youth. They don't want to teach you how to think. They want to teach you what to think. They're gonna brainwash you. That is what they do. Now that's offensive to him, so instead of telling me to shut up about it, they need to stop doing it. And then we automatically will quit talking about it. Right? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like that stupid canard that Dallin Oaks loves to trot out there. It's wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even when that criticism is true. Well, if you don't like being criticized, then quit being such morons and power-hungry, greedy people and start becoming like Leonard Arrington. Love people, appreciate them, and allow them their differences. And learn how to discuss instead of control. And instead of wanting to book burn issues that are different than yours, how about coming together with your own people that you obviously don't give a flying flip about except for their money, and why don't you start learning how to love your neighbor as yourself, especially your own people, when you can start doing goodness and good things like Leonard Arrington? Then we can stop criticizing. That's a two-way street. You get to change first. Then we won't have any reason to make these videos. We'll have reasons to praise you and emulate you and say, wow, look at how good and cool they are, like we do with some historians, Leonard Arrington, D. Michael Quinn, and all that. But you keep excommunicating people. They talk about the excommunication of the September 6th in here and how heinously 
the church leaders abused their priesthood and and uh, excommunicated so many people uh, because they wrote candid history and they included facts that the church didn't think was appropriate because we don't want people to think we're human. We want you to worship our holy greatness. They can't quite say it that way, but that's exactly what they want you to think and believe and do, you know. If you're okay with that, great, go with it. But don't get mad at the rest of us if we say no thanks, because there's a better one to follow. Ooh. Ooh. I don't want to worship Dallin Oaks. Oh, horror, huh? <laughs> uh, on page 176, in wrestling with the dilemma of producing candid history, whether it was oral or written, Leonard reached back to the goal expressed by George Tanner, his college institute of religion advisor, to help my students to see life's real problems instead of having to butter everything up for them. Yeah, now you can begin to see the problem with the church education system. They are entirely misleading the entire youth. I was. <laughs> There's no question about that. The church does institute students a disservice by not teaching things realistically. But you can't tell them that because they already, of course, know it all. You know, They're not much leaders, are they? Nibley years ago did his talk, Leaders versus Managers. The church stupidly went into management, and they are so blasé, boring. You think I'm kidding? I've got lots of general conferences as evidence. Can you honestly stay awake through half of that? <laughs> well, when they get out in life, then they have to face up to reality. See, in Mormonism, you're raised in a cult cocoon. That's just the way it is, right? Or pretty much any other religion, as far as that goes. We should prepare them for the reality, is what Leonard Arrington was saying. Good intent notwithstanding, Tanner's philosophy carried a substantial risk, one that was underscored by Apostle Mark Peterson in Tanner's presence. We don't need or want the learning of the world. Now you know how your cult leaders think, right? Because they're bullshitting everybody else then in order to get accreditation at BYU. They have to have the learning. Of the, they don't need it? My eye. <laughs> really? Well, how did Russell Nelson become a heart surgeon? Through the Holy Ghost teaching him? Or did he go through decades of school? Yeah, well, you know. That shows you how utterly brain-dead Marky e. Peterson was. All of his colleagues around him took that stance. Right? Well, what, now we know they're chasing after mammon. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars. Of course, they can conveniently ignore Jesus' teachings. You cannot serve God and mammon because, of course, they're already God. Now they get to make the money, right? That's how they act. 
That's how they think. You think I'm kidding? You better get this book and see that I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's astonishing. The utter insipid arrogance in Salt Lake City. It blows your mind. It's incredible. And then the idea here, one colleague put it succinctly. Determining what actually happened is of value, and it hasn't been in the past. On one occasion, Leonard put it even more succinctly. God does not need our lies. Tell the truth. God doesn't need us to lie for him. And yet, Boyd K. Packer, Marky E. Peterson, and Ezra Taft Benson thought that God needed our lies. They, they felt they had to protect God. I mean, he's only God. We have the priesthood. We should lie about all this and butter it up and rosy it up so that people will believe the truth. <laughs> you think I'm exaggerating, don't you? Get this book. I'm not kidding, man. This is the most eye-opening book I've ever read. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing and I'm mocking because it deserves it, but this is so terribly sad. It did not have to be this way. It still doesn't have to be this way. Thank God, God's one shoe ahead of their step shine, and he invented the internet for us. And now, now, the actual reality comes out. And we can now discriminate and discern where is the truth and where isn't it. And they're still trying to brainwash you with doubt your doubts. Without realizing that, I'm doubting their lies. And they still don't get it. Isn't that remarkable? That's quite interesting. So Leonard sought openness and honesty, believing that it would ultimately be beneficial to the reader, even when that balance involved acknowledging the flaws of church leaders of the past. You see, the church leaders believe they're already perfect and that they're God. You know, their poop doesn't stink, their feet aren't too big. They never say anything wrong. Everything they think is totally beneficial. Everything they do is right, period. No discussion necessary. I'm an apostle. I'm always right, etc. Their arrogance is unbelievable. You think I'm kidding? Man, get this book. Leonard Arrington and the Writing of Mormon History. It's eye-opening, man. Whew! Page 181. Israelson felt that much of the criticism that came to Arrington from inside the church came because his idea of faithful history that President Lee had tasked him to write was history that was faithful to the facts. The facts didn't have to be covered up in his mind. But that's not what the brethren mean by faithful history. They mean faithful history. 
hold back all the bad, and include only the rosy. And they really think the world is going to believe that cleaned up version. And now we've been, what, uh, 200 years at it almost. 215 years, something like that. And they're still less than 1% of 1% of the population. And they are so blind and so short-sighted that they still don't get it. Isn't that astonishing? Man, when you look at it that way, you go, wow. Wow, thank you, Lord, for the extra light and letting me see where the truth isn't. Page 193. He bristled at the delays that he regularly encountered as a result of the decision-making process above his rank. In other words, in the brethren likening the church to an iceberg in the velocity at which it moved. No decision is made unless it has to be made. They will not answer questions unless they must do so immediately. He saw as an underlying problem the fact that only three or four people, including the First Presidency and some senior apostles, made the binding decisions. Since few of Leonard's questions rose to the level of the First Presidency, he was frustrated that the decision-makers to whom he reported often declined to make definitive decisions because they were constantly looking over their shoulders. Having enjoyed an atmosphere of academic freedom for 26 years, he found it difficult to adapt to a culture that stifled such freedom. You think Mormonism makes you free? I got bad news for you. Yeah. Oh, this is fabulous, too. Page 194. This is really important. We've all seen it by now, right, on the internet, on the, uh, the uh, slowness. The church is 20 years behind the time. No, it's not. It's 70 years behind the times. <laughs> After reading this book, you'll see I don't think I'm exaggerating, man. These idiots are in the 1910s still. It's breathtaking. But there's a reason why, and this is so interesting. I think Greg Prince taps right into this very beautifully and this is what Leonard Arrington bless his heart had to endure from those cocksure poppycock arrogant children that were in charge concerns over turf well these were coupled with a not invented here mentality that looked for all initiatives to begin at the top rather than harness the creative energy among the historians at the bottom because he had an entire staff but they couldn't do anything without oh, permission uh, nothing could put more strains on imaginative programming than the feeling that if it did not come from a general authority it should not have been thought of isn't that amazing? It is suspect immediately if it comes from anyone else other than a general authority. 
within the whole church office building, they're talking. The entire history department. The net effect of these factors was a culture of indecisiveness at the level at which Leonard worked. That culture favored the status quo, even if it was outmodded and worked against innovation. They just didn't want to change. And they still don't. They think they're already in the celestial kingdom, and everything's honky-dory full of roses. That's how deludedly ignorant they are. Is it any wonder General Conference puts us to sleep? <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here's how it works. This is, I, this is sad. <laughs> it's hilarious. Trust me, if you're involved in a bureaucracy at work, you're gonna love this. <laughs> oh, wow. Don't worry, we have no fear. Mormons can't overtake the world. <laughs> they are too incompetent. Listen to this. <laughs> Page 195. <laughs> this is really, oh, this is, this is hilariously pathetic. We want to determine a matter of policy. We take it to Elder Joseph Anderson, who was then 87 and had only recently been replaced as secretary to the First Presidency, where he had served for decades, Elder Anderson does not make a decision. Almost never does he make a decision. He recommends we take that question to the advisors to the Twelve. The advisors almost never make a decision. They recommend we take it to the First Presidency. We do not receive answers on many of the questions we take to the First Presidency. The First Presidency wants to discuss it with the Twelve. It never gets on the agenda of the Twelve. Or if it does make the agenda, they don't get to it. Or if they get to it, someone asks a question about which our advisors can't answer, so it is referred to them to get the answer. They subsequently ask us the question. We provide the answer and they go back with it to the Twelve. By that time, the Twelve have another question. <laughs> we have had several of our proposals precisely follow this route with no decision in a year or even two years. <laughs> Such is the inspiration of Jesus to run his church. <laughs> wow, what an eye-opener, huh? <laughs> wow. 
That is so fascinating. 196, this is really, this is really sad too. I mean, all of the, this whole charade of having truth and being truthful and wanting to enlighten the world and share the gospel with the world. That's a con job, man. <laughs> People in the church hierarchy who were not well read in the manuscript history were at a disadvantage, and their response to the new versions of history was often one of self-protective or turf-protective reflex that invariably was counterproductive to Leonard's plans. Leonard commented with rare indignation on this pattern in December 1976. We have observed instances in which a member of the Twelve sounded off about our work without really knowing what we were trying to do or why, and without consulting us, and without consulting our advisors, and without consulting our managing director, and without giving them or us a chance to answer their charges. You see, the brethren don't need to talk about it. They already have the answers. They already know the truth. And therefore, when they say, oh, well, that's a stupid proposal, or that's wrong, bam, they just squelch it. That's inspiration, folks. <laughs> wow. That would have drove me nuts. It did Leonard, particularly annoying to Leonard, were the opportunities lost when general authorities failed to grasp how powerful the history would have been in the conduct of their business. Instead, he lamented, they rely on legalistic pronouncements and coercive administrative power. See, they're already God. They don't need to take advice. They don't need to understand anything. What we're doing is right, period, end of story. And that's eventually why they got rid of this whole idea. I have never seen a group of people so afraid to do something, so fearful of doing wrong, terrorized by the possibility of vindictiveness, and this is a church. Very interesting. Now there's your revelation of how the brethren live. Makes you almost feel sorry for them. But only almost. And then they go on with the university spying information where the students spied on the professors and turned them in and of course the brethren immediately believed such bullshit stupid gossip they were inventing ideas on the professors and of course the brethren in there they just accepted that but they wouldn't ever talk with anybody about it or sit down and counsel with the no communication whatsoever they don't need to they're gone already right that's their attitude. You think I'm kidding. You think I'm kidding. I got 500 pages of evidence right here, man. This book is incredible. It's just amazing how enlightening it is on the utter silliness that's in Salt Lake City. Supposing to be truth. 
Packer, of course, went on to say that some historians would say things to their seminary students just because they were true, whether or not it was wise. So, in Packer's mind, of course, since he was the enlightened apostle, it was much better to hide it and lie about it and cheat and manipulate the truth into a falsehood and then convince people that the Holy Ghost is going to testify to you that that is the truth. <laughs> I can't possibly be the only one that sees the problem there, am I? I mean, for real. Wow. Nobody in Mormonism even knows how the Holy Ghost actually works because they're all testifying to the bullshit made-up story that the Holy Ghost told them was true. And it can't be true. We have the historical evidence showing it wasn't happening that way. Now that should make you stop and think. Right? It sure did me. <laughs> and I'm happier and better off for it. Ooh. Packer warned Leonard that writing things just because they were true was not a wise counsel to take. <laughs> this is a guy who knows the truth of Jesus. I testify of Jesus' holy name. I am special chosen. I am a watchman in the tower. Mine errand from the Lord. I'm chosen because I have his spirit of truth in my heart. But I'm not going to let you know the truth. I'm going to cheat, manipulate it, and hide it. No thanks. <laughs> now, after this, the historians got together. And they were, were discussing their conundrum because Boyd K. Packer was pissing all over everything they wanted to do. He was just making a complete ass of himself, right? And so here, <laughs> here is the conversation among the church historians and those people who had been working in the church office building under the brethren for the last 30 years of their lives, they all got together in a conference, in a council. And they were trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? Everything we propose gets squashed. Get the implication here. This blew my mind. <gasps> Leonard gave no indication that he grasped at the time the weightiness of Packer's warning. Indeed, he expressed his ambivalence several weeks later when he was invited to speak to a private study group. To what extent are we obligated to tell all of the truth? That's one of the questions he was asked! <laughs> wow! One person argued that while it is permissible to acknowledge that church leaders have human failings, it is inappropriate to describe such failings. 
Another person in the group felt exactly the opposite, that we must point out human failings and weaknesses in order for young people to be able to identify with them and also to prepare them for all of the nasty things they will hear from non-Mormons and anti-Mormons. We must make them credible. Wow! Notice the implications here, you guys! They have to lie about their church leaders, and the youth don't connect with that, because none of us can live up to those godly standards of holiness that Boyd K. Packer lived. So he's not even real to us. So in order to make him credible, do they actually tell the truth? <laughs> or do they continue the lie? And now, 30, 40 years down the road, now, now we've been in the age of the internet now for 30 years, who is leaving this church faster than all of the others? Exactly. All of the youth who can't identify with the gods in Salt Lake City. Yeah. There's nothing to cling to. There's nothing to associate with. They can't even begin to be comfortable around them. And they can't stand the policies, so everyone's jumping ship. And what's interesting is, the inspiration from God Almighty can't get it through the gods in Salt Lake City's heads of what the problem is. They really don't think they have a problem. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars and they're building lots of temples and oh, look at us, glorious growth. We are the gods. We are the solution to all the world's problems. Get rid of everybody that doesn't think, look, smell, and act like us and the world will be better. Do we really want that kind of power over us? I don't think so. I personally, I value my freedom. Uh, Jesus got it right. You learned the truth that there's nothing but bullshit coming out of Salt Lake City, and it will free you because you don't have to handle that. You, no thanks. Not interested. <laughs> I want reality. <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing how that works? Now, had you told me 10 years ago I was going to be making this video saying what I'm saying? I would have slapped you down. I would have said, no way, man. No way. I've got a testimony. I've got the truth. Well, that's not how it works. Evidence presents information and truth, not statements of dogma. Yeah. But the real essence of the letter, this on page 259, was a theme to which Packer often returned the ecclesiastical always trumps the scholarly. This was in his utterly stupid, the mantle is far, far, far greater than the intellect. Well, it was in his case because he didn't have any intellect. All he had was mantle. His brains was like a walnut, right? But in his opinion, the Ecclesiastes, in other words, he was trying to be the Pope, you know. Put simplistically, Packer advocated that dogma would always trump data. Yeah. 
I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> no thanks. Your dogma is just stupid. Not interested in following that, that's for sure. Some things that are true are not very useful. It makes sense if one's viewpoint is to use history selectively as a means to an end. And that's their heinous philosophy to this day. You just ponder that. You think about that. That's, okay, I'm getting close to where I've... Yeah, and then the... Uh, and I, I'm, I haven't even gotten to the good parts yet, man. Maybe I'll have to make another video. Anyway, let me just say this. Um, yeah, 277. This is important to understand why the church will never catch up. Uh, they're always going to be out of touch with reality. They don't have a clue what real is. They're living in their own cocoon, man. <laughs> and it's sad because it's so unnecessary, but they won't even let Jesus tell them now. They know more than Jesus. You'll want my proof? Here it is. Since the church's founding, and by inference was likely to continue to evolve, conservative senior apostles did not take kindly to the notion of change, either real change in the church or change in the way that its story was told, since that was the issue with them. So it hardly even mattered how devout the authors of that history were, that didn't bother the brethren at all. Or how carefully they had written their narrative of change. The point is, the brethren don't like change. And they'll do everything they can to stop it. In other words, they don't have faith. They have complete doubt about the plan of salvation of Jesus Christ, whom they love to pretend they testify of. Because how did he make the universe? What is the one constant in total reality? Change. Everything changes. You can't stop it. You're not God, Boyd. You're not God. Mark, you're not God, Ezra. And yet they wanted to be. They wanted to stop change, which shows that they are the ones who are doubting, not the rest of us. That's why they manipulate the record, because they lack the faith. So, you know, that's one way to look at it. So I am not having a faith crisis. The church has a truth crisis, and it continues right now up to today, which is unfortunate. If you're still a Mormon and you're wondering, what the hell do I do now? Well, there's a lot of information we can share with you that hopefully, I know Bill Real is putting out some really good information on, on marriage ideas and stuff like that. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to keep bringing in uh, either analysis or uh, information or evidence or history or philosophy or even the ancient mysteries, which is what I'm doing too, uh, to show that there's much, much more to this 
picture than meets the eye, and it is exciting, and it is soul-enlightening, and it does help us to grow and expand our own hearts, souls, psychology, and our own minds, and so this is why we keep making these kinds of videos. But in the meantime, where it is justified to criticize, we will do so. We, it's not that we want to, but we want the truth. I think that's everyone's desire. It's amazing that the church leaders don't want you to have that truth. Now that should make you stop and think. <laughs> keep watching our videos. We'll keep presenting more information. So, Anyway, that's all. I'm, i I got to stop. I've probably gone over the limit again. So, thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. I enjoy making these. I enjoy bringing you new interesting books and ideas and themes and uh, concepts and philosophies and religion and history and, and the mysteries. And there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to do. And it's a lot of fun. And it's very enjoyable. And it can be a feast for your soul. So there's always good news in acquiring more information, more knowledge, more hope, more context, wider context. Because the truth is many, 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 many faceted, amazingly enough, paradoxically enough, even though it's just one. That, that's something to think about, isn't it? So... Thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. Be good, do have fun. Be good, do well, have fun. Sleep well, and I will see you in the next Backyard Professor videos.